Mark chapter 11, open your Bibles to Mark's 11th chapter. The title for this morning is cleansing, excuse me, cursing, cleansing and conflict, the Messiah's judgment on unfaithful Israel. Now, when you read that title, you can immediately kind of dismiss yourself and say, well, this is for Israel. I can just put my mind in neutral today and not worry about it. Let me assure you that you will find yourself, if you're careful, in the mirror of God's word this morning in a very penetrating fashion. Mark chapter 11. We come up to another Mark and sandwich, which uh, is a big scholarly word to say Mark tells a story And inside the story, he tells another story. This one is chronologically framed by the Holy Spirit. And I think you'll understand why this all goes together. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps... He would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. He said to it, to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach them and say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him. For the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by the next morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. To properly understand Judaism in the Old Testament, to properly understand the context of religiosity in the New Testament, you must have a working understanding of the temple of the Jews. The temple resided in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. It not only sits at the central place of worship geographically in Israel, it occupies the central focus of worship for the nation of Israel. As worship in the temple went, so went the faithfulness of the nation. And the worship of the nation, as it went south, so the worship in the temple went. They had a symbiotic, influential relationship 
one on the other. Thus, the temple became a microcosm of the spiritual health of the nation of Israel. In short, the temple worship of the day of Jesus was corrupt. It was foul. It was misplaced. And that represented the worship of the entire nation of Israel. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem was an incredible structure. There had been none like it built ever before, and frankly, none since. It was massive, it was impressive, it was ornate, and it was beautiful. It was unique, and it was holy. It's so important to understand the significance of the temple that we have to do a little historical review before we walk into Jerusalem with Jesus in this text. The location of the temple is anchored to a very familiar, very important biblical text in Genesis 22. You remember that's the traumatic chapter of the Bible where Abraham is commanded by God to go offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. The place identified by God ends up being Mount Moriah. God graciously provides a ram to offer instead of Isaac at the last moment. Isaac is spared. That hill, that mountain becomes then very sacred real estate to the nation of Israel, to Abraham himself. You can imagine everyone who walked by that hill for centuries said, that's where Isaac was spared. It was so important that 900 years after this event, think about this, around 988 BC, David actually buys Mount Moriah from a man named Ornan in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It was a piece of land adjacent to the city of David, just a little north and east uh, from the city of David. And he chose that location to be the place of the temple where the sacrifices of God would take place. Doesn't that make sense? That's where the great sacrifice that Isaac was spared from and the ram was offered for took place. David purchased that from Ornan so that the temple could be placed right there per God's instructions. But David was not allowed to build the temple. First Chronicles 17 tells us because he was a man of bloodshed, that privilege was passed to his son Solomon. Solomon is able to build the temple, which makes sense that he, because he was the richest human who had ever lived before that or up until then. He had all of the resources to build this spectacular building and also pulled from the offerings of the people as well. It was an unprecedented architectural marvel. Vaulted ceilings, beautiful woods, overlaid with gold and silver. Never had there been a more beautiful edifice or place of worship. However, fast forward 350 years. God judges the people because of the corrupt worship in Israel as represented in the temple. Babylon then comes across the Fertile Crescent, drops down through Nebuchadnezzar as king, ransacks Israel, pillages the temple, burns it and dismantles it to the ground, steals all the gold, steals all the valuable pieces, takes them back to Babylon, and Solomon's great massive temple is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Seventy years later, after the prophecy of Jeremiah comes to pass, the people in captivity in Babylon are led back up north across the Fertile Crescent, dropping down through Israel. 
to reoccupy Israel. Their first assignment, rebuild the temple. The book of Haggai, though, records that for 18 years they got distracted. They were paneling their own houses. They were decorating their own houses and had left the temple desolate. God gives them an opportunity to repent. They do. They rebuild the temple. But even in chapter 2 of Haggai, the older people who were young at the time of the Babylonian captivity saw the newer temple and said, this is nothing compared to its former glory. And they thought they had failed. That great book ends in Haggai by saying this will be a greater temple than Solomon's not because of its ornateness but because the Messiah would one day walk in that temple a man named Zerubbabel led the effort to rebuild the temple it's called the second temple for obvious reasons the, uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar had ravaged the first temple this is the second temple completed according to Ezra 6.15 and 515 B.C. It was nowhere near the splendor of Solomon's temple, but it was done according to God's command and obedience. Now fast forward a few hundred years and a pagan ruler named Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes, conquers Jerusalem. He desecrates the temple. He levels it, not from the standpoint of an architectural dismantling, but from a religious dismantling. He places a statue of the God Jupiter inside the temple thus defiling it, and then, think about this, he offers a pig on the altar to desecrate it. Three years later, the Jewish hero Judah Maccabeus led a brief revival, but the Jewish religion continued to slip in apostasy, and every time there was a, a judgment on the temple, that was God's judgment on the people who were slipping from their worship of Yahweh, the great God of Israel. Then in 20 BC, the Idumean king, King Herod, the half-breed, begins a major renovation of the temple that was actually even happening during the time of Jesus. This would have been the temple, the renovated second temple that Jesus would have walked into, that Jesus would have ministered in. And as we will take time to note in Mark chapter 13, this temple, as a result of this curse that we're going to see today and the prophecy in Mark 13, this temple would be leveled without one stone on top of the other in A.D. 70. Titus Vespasian, the great Roman general, would conquer Jerusalem. There is the Arch of Titus, which depicts this in Rome that you can see to this day. And for this reason, this history comes into full focus. Israel was cyclically book of Judges, throughout the prophets, shown their sin, they repented and then slipped back in even to a deeper, a deeper idolatry, a deeper form of paganism. And God typically judged the nation by judging the temple. As you know, there's never been a temple since AD 70. Daniel 9, 27 informs us that the temple will one day be rebuilt and the Antichrist will desecrate that temple during what we call the Great Tribulation. Simply put, you can pretty much trace the history of Israel by the story and history of the temple. And that's where we find ourselves in the passage before us. God regularly and systematically judged Israel by judging what was happening on the temple, the Temple Mount. 
God in flesh now walks into the temple, into, onto its mount, and curses Israel for her false worship. But this time, the judgment will last until the end of the age. As you know, there is no temple in Jerusalem. In fact, there is an Islamic mosque built on the temple mount. Now, the passage before us, as I said, is another mark and sandwich. It begins with the, the cursing of a fig tree. It ends with the cursed fig tree. And in the middle of that is the cleansing of the temple. Those go hand in glove. Those are metaphorical representations one of the other. It's a story about the cursing of a fig tree with the account of the cursing of Israel right in the middle. And the two come together to show the Messiah's judgment on the temple worship and Israel as a whole. And listen, friends, it also is a piercing indictment on our own worship if we'll listen carefully enough. To break it down, I wanna show you three dramatic pointers to the Messiah's coming judgment. Three dramatic pointers to the Messiah's coming judgment. The first we find in verses 12 to 14, an unsatisfied expectation. An unsatisfied expectation. On the next day, verse 12 says, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. We have some descriptors there. The next day, they and he. The next day is one of considerable debate. We're not gonna take the time to do it here, but I have a strong opinion about it. It depends on whether you have the triumphal entry happening on Sunday or Monday. But let me tell you, that is something novel. It makes no difference in your interpretation or application. I happen to believe that Jesus walked in on Sunday and that this is Monday. For a number of reasons, I think it's best to see that that triumphal happen, uh, entry happened on the first day of the week, Sunday. This would make today when he's walking up to the temple and seeing this fig tree Monday, uh, likely morning. If you take a Monday entry, then it's Tuesday and it, it really is not gonna matter, okay? You would be wrong, but it won't matter. <laughs> We're gonna come back to that chronology in just a few weeks. Jesus leaves Bethany, as I showed you on a map last week. Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. We think of two miles as a long walk. That was just, just a, a, a half an hour or so journey for them. Um, Jesus leaves Bethany, goes around, drops down the uh, Mount of Olives to the Kidron Valley and is gonna head up the mountain, up the hill rather, to Jerusalem, up the Temple Mount. Likely mid-morning, they're making their walk over the Temple Mount. It's time for breakfast. Another demonstration that our Lord is a man. He got hungry. Jesus, he becomes hungry. That should catch your attention as another demonstration that Jesus was fully man. And as a man, as a human being, Jesus from Nazareth became hungry. Now this is important, verse 13. These details are so critical. He's with his men. They, they travel from Probably Mary and Martha's, Lazarus' house. They travel around the ridge, drop down in the valley. The Mount of what? Olives. It was full of olive trees, so a fig tree would have stuck out. He saw it at a distance. Different uh, trunk structures, different uh, bark, uh, different uh, leaves, different branch structures. At a distance, he saw a fig tree in leaf. 
and he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. There was no 7-Eleven. There was no McDonald's to drive through. He was hungry. He saw a fig tree. Maybe there's a fig on it. I'm hungry. This is the Mount of Olives. A fig tree, again, would have caught everyone's attention. No doubt they knew of this fig tree. They had walked by it many times. Mark tells us this, the fig tree was in leaf. See that little phrase? Now, a little bit on fig trees, if, if, if I may. Leaves are found on fig trees for about nine months of the year. For three months of the year, they're barren, no leaves. That's during the winter months. This is coming just out of the winter months. We know that this week is the, is the week of Passover, right? It's the week of the crucifixion. This would have likely been, as we rewind the, the, uh, the chronology, during the month of April. Therefore, there would have been leaves on the trees, uh, on the fig trees during this month. They would have had small green figs on them, likely, that were not ripe. You could eat them in emergencies, but they were sour. They certainly had caloric benefit, but they were, they were not desirable. In leaf means it was in leaf, but it wasn't the season for the figs to be fully ripe. This is to signal something to us as a reader. It was not the season for figs, we find out. This signals to us that we are to look for a symbolic meaning to this account. Jesus is doing something more than just going to get breakfast here. Also, Micah chapter 7, verse 1, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 13, speak of Israel as a barren fig tree. And since Jesus was the author of the Old Testament, he would have known that. The short of it is this. Israel, like this fig tree, was fruitless when Jesus expected fruit. That's the point. He expected there to be fruit even though I think he knew full well when he went to there it was not gonna be fruit. Look at verse 13. He came to it and he finds nothing but leaves. This fig tree didn't even have the buds of these figs, these small green pre-fruits. It was not the season for figs. Should have had those little buds, it didn't. Should have had some, some fruit, nothing to find. So he says to it, he talks to this tree. The creator of the universe speaks to his creation. That shouldn't surprise you. How did the creation come into being? Colossians 1 says Jesus was the agent of creation. He is the one as the second person of the Trinity who said day one, be. Day two, be. Day three, be. He spoke the creation into existence. Now he speaks to this fruitless tree with no personality. You might find it interesting to know that this is the only miracle of destruction that Jesus commits. Oh, I know the pigs ran over the, the, uh, um, the cliff into, the, into the, the lake, but they did that on their own accord. He says to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Don't miss this. And the disciples were paying attention. They were listening. Jesus uses his power to curse and kill a fig tree. Now this has raised 
if I may say it, silly questions over the centuries in interpretation as to the ethics of Jesus cursing a tree. You can only imagine, Bertrand Russell, actually the, the, the famous atheist, used this um, uh, account as his proof that Jesus was wicked because he cursed a fig tree. Jesus, however, is not violating any ethics. That tree was going to die again eventually anyway. This is easily resolved by remembering that Jesus is God the creator in human flesh, has rule and right over every part of his creation. If he wants to use this tree as an illustration, it's his and he can. Plus, there's more going on here than the dying of a tree. There's the cursing of a nation. It's a picture of the judgment of the temple and Israel for misplaced worship, for missing the Messiah. Jesus is truly hungry physically, but he's also hungry spiritually to see the worship of God up on that mount where he's going. He desired to see true worship happening. William Lane comments, the unexpected and incongruous character of Jesus' action in looking for figs at a season when no fruit could be found would stimulate curiosity and point beyond the incident to a deeper significance, a different meaning. His act was an example of prophetic realism similar to the symbolic acts of the Old Testament prophets. And he gives several examples. Isaiah chapter 20, verse 1 to 6, Jeremiah 13, Ezekiel 4. The point is the same that Jesus referenced back in Mark chapter seven, verse six. He said, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. It is written, this people, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. Now, Peter is gonna pick up on that at the end of this, this story. But understand that what he just did is about to be fully realized and observed when they walk up the ridge. He had an unsatisfied expectation for hunger in the tree. He had an unsatisfied expectation that he was going to find worship of the true God up on the temple mount and watch what happens. The second dramatic pointer to the Messiah's coming judgment is in verses 15 to 19, an unrepentant people. An unrepentant People. Jesus leaves the tree, hikes up the eastern slope of the temple mountain, mount enters the temple complex and is immediately confronted with an elaborate system of, you wanna say worship, but it was of commerce. A commercial industry. And he disrupts it in what has come to be known as a cleansing of the temple this is the second time Jesus cleanses the temple. There's a lot of debate about this. There's a cleansing in John chapter two. I think that happened three years ago uh, when he was in the, the temple. There, was a, there are different accounts. He used a, a whip there. Uh, he said different things there. He quoted different scriptures there. The cleansing in John two happened at the beginning of the Lord's ministry and here at the end, a similar cleansing happens. Three years separate the two cleansing. During that time, even though he cleansed it three years ago, the buying and selling that happened on the Temple Mount rose again, no doubt as a result of the greedy tendencies of the Jewish leaders. Jesus had good reason to expect the temple to be an environment for worship. Psalm 27, four, listen. 
One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house, that's the temple, house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. That was his expectation. And that's not what he found. Let me give you some some geographical pointers here by showing you what this temple would have looked like. This is a mock-up. Uh, you can see this in Jerusalem. It's a model that's uh, in the center of Jerusalem, and it's a marvel to look at. It's made to scale. The temple comp- This is the, uh, the, the eastern gate. was called the Beautiful Gate. This is the Kidron Valley down here. If you go right, right over here, that's where they were in Bethany. They come down. They come up, up through here. Large area on both sides of the temple. That's called the, the Court of the Gentiles. Anyone could go there. Uh, the, this is where the, uh, the priests and the merchants would live. These were apartment dwellings. This is the court of the Gentiles. You would go in here, and this is the court of the women. All Jews could go in there. Just inside that, right below this door is, a, is, an, is the altar. That's the court of the, uh, of the men or the court of the Jews, surrounded on both sides by the court of the priests. Right here is where the, the, uh, uh, the, the offerings would happen. Out here were, according to the description, an unbelievable scene of buying and selling. Look at verse 15. They came here, they came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling. You can see as soon as he enters into that Eastern gate, he's instantly in the court of the Gentiles. He would have been confronted with all of this commerce. Buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers, the seats of those who were selling doves. He would not permit anyone, that's a large area, anyone to carry merchandise through the temple, the temple complex. You know what amazes me most about this? No one stops him. He brings the entire corporate business to a halt on the Temple Mount. That's not only the power of his deity on display, it's the power of his masculinity on full display. Men, can I just talk to you from my heart for just a minute? Can I speak to my own? Real men do what's right. He was a real man. Real men are not afraid of the consequences of standing for God. Real men are driven by convictions over their fear. Real men stand up for God and his honor and Jesus was a man's man, the perfect picture of masculinity. He was righteously angry that God was being defiled. A lot of things make us mad. Does God's dishonor bring passion in your heart? This is a picture of masculinity like none other. So he begins to disrupt things. He's overturning the tables of the money changers. Why money changers? Well, the currency there and even now are shekels. You would come from different uh, places in the country that use different currency. They would have to change their money because they could only pay their temple taxes in shekels. They would uh, be extorted upwards of 25%. Also, remember this. The chief priests and the scribes looked at this as a money-making venture so that if you brought your own lamb, if you brought your own goat, if you brought your own dove, they could 
just willy-nilly in any way they wanted say, that's not acceptable, forcing you to buy a new sacrifice from them at an exorbitant price. Jesus sees that. He sees these animals being carried through the temple as substitutes for someone's poor and humble and sacrificial sacrifice they brought in. And he puts the whole thing to a stop. Verse 17. And he began to teach them and say to them, stop right there. You go from chaos to silence. Do you see that? Turning over tables, turning over seats. I don't imagine those seats were empty. And then he starts to teach them from this massive commotion, it goes instantly to silence. What is he going to say? You know what he says? Is it not written? He goes straight to the scriptures, straight to the Old Testament. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. This instruction goes back to the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter eight. Let me belabor this for a moment and read that to you. Solomon has built the temple. They're dedicating the temple and he, he sets in motion what the expectations of the temple and the people in the temple should have been. Just listen, 1 Kings chapter eight, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? What a question. Will God dwell on the earth? And he said he would in that small square footage. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant prays before you today. Prayer, 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 mark that. That your eyes may be open toward this house night and day, toward the place which you have said, my name shall be there. To listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place. Listen to the supplication of your servant and to your people Israel when they pray toward this place, here in heaven your dwelling place and here and forgiven. He recognized that this is the representation of God, but it wasn't his ultimate dwelling place that was heaven. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath on the earth and he comes and an oath before you is in your house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the wicked and bringing his way on his own head and justifying the righteous by giving him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before an army, before an enemy, because they have sinned against you, if they turn to you and confess your name and pray and make supplication to you in your house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land which you gave their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you. Do you hear a rhythm here? Hear a cycle? And they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin which, with which you afflict them. Then they hear in heaven and you hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and the people in Israel. Indeed, teach them the good way in which they should walk. Send rain on your land, which you have given your people for an inheritance. If there's a famine in the land, if there's a pestilence, if there's a blight or, or mildew, locust or grasshopper, if the enemy besieges them in the land of their cities, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man, by all your people of Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear their prayers in heaven 
in your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. Also concerning the foreigner, the nations, who is not of your people of Israel, when he comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your great mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house here in your dwelling place and in heaven, do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people Israel, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. That was all foundational. For Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 56, verse 7. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain, that's Zion, that's Moriah, that's the Temple Mount, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus taught, you know, he taught, you've made this a flea market. You made this an extortion palace. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. Further, he says, you've made it a robber's den. That comes from Jeremiah 7, 11. Has this house, which is called by name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. He is showing the fulfillment of that prophecy in their watching The temple had become a place of commerce and a place of robbery, a den for robbers. Again, leaders would arbitrarily deem an animal sacrifice unfit so they could sell them a new one. They would extort them by changing their money that was a foreign currency by 25% to get a shekel so they could pay their temple taxes. And this was happening, by the way, (laughs) during the week of Passover. The most holy week to the Jew He comes to the temple and he's extorted. Who do you think would be most upset by Jesus' teaching? Verse 18. The chief priests and the scribes heard this, heard him teaching and began seeking how to destroy him. The word destroy is an interesting word. It means kill. It has the idea of killing, but it's bigger than the word kill. It means not only to annihilate his life, but to wipe out his influence. They wanted to get rid of this man from Nazareth, what he taught. They wanted to kill him, make him to be a sinner in the eyes of the people. And you can see the cross being erected in their own minds at this moment. How might they destroy him? Look at these motivations, for they were afraid of him. If you just saw what he did to the temple, I think you might be afraid too. And the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. They were afraid of his power, his masculinity, his faith in God. But they were also afraid that the people were behind him and they were now shifting their allegiance from the chief priests and the, and the scribes to Jesus and they will work very hard in the coming days to erase that, legion, that allegiance. Jesus teaches and what does he find? He encounters the fulfillment basically of Isaiah 6.10 
He finds dull ears and dim eyes. So they conspire to kill him. You don't think Jesus, in the silent of that teaching moment, sees those men over on the side and understands what they're plotting? The same word destroy is used in Mark 3, 6, where it began up in Galilee. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. This is after he uh, um, uh, heals on the Sabbath as to how they might destroy him. Same word. Don't miss that they were afraid of him. The crowd was impressed, astonished at his teaching. They were simply afraid of how Jesus was a threat to their own power, position, and influence. Listen, spiritual jealousy always reveals a foul disposition in your heart. Spiritual jealousy always reveals a foul disposition in your heart. This is the opposite of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He must increase me, make me nothing. I want to decrease. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. So they go back down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, around the corner, into Bethany, probably to Lazarus' house or Mary and Martha's house. And the men stay there. Jesus leaves a tense scene on the Temple Mount and returns for a night of rest in Bethany. He found an unrepentant people, which brings us back to the fig tree and the third dramatic pointer to the Messiah's coming judgment, an unmerciful verdict. This is terrifying. An unmerciful verdict. They get up the next morning, passing by in the morning, I think Tuesday, they saw the fig tree withered up from the roots. Being reminded, remembering, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, now we get the word that you cursed has withered. Peter understand that it had been cursed. Again, likely Tuesday morning, Jesus and his men are walking that same two-mile route from Bethany back to Jerusalem. They come to the fig tree that Jesus had spoke to the day before to find breakfast. It was dead and withered up, but this is no natural withering. Mark tells us it was dead from the roots up. How could they know the roots? The roots had come to such a tragic fate that they had likely popped through the surface. The men could see the roots. This is a radical destruction. It was a supernatural destruction. If you were to poison a tree, it would in no way be in this condition overnight. It would be impossible for a full-grown tree capable of bearing fruit to wither and die from root to the end of the branches overnight, but this one did. Why? Because it was a picture of the worship on the temple and the spiritual condition of Israel. James Brooks writes, The cursing of the fig tree and the expulsion of the merchants from the temple are prophetic actions that symbolize the same thing. The coming judgment on unfaithful Israel by the destruction of the temple and its worship. End quote. 
see Jesus' full humanity on display here in his masculinity. You also Jesus in strength. You also Jesus full, see Jesus' full deity here. He spoke to a tree and it died overnight from the roots up. Every tree, every leaf turned brown, branches crackling, roots pop through the soil. What do we do with this? How do you apply this? Just a couple of takeaways. What happens in God's places of worship is serious. What happens in God's designated places of worship is serious. Oh, it's easy for us to throw rocks at Israel, isn't it? It's easy for us to say, oh, I can't believe they got so far off. Those who approach God in any worship, in any age, in church or temple, do so as a holy people set aside to care about God's holiness. A.W. Pink wrote, an ineffably and unspeakably holy God who has the utmost abhorrence of all sin was never invented by any of Adam's fallen descendants. God is holy and expects holiness in the temple. And listen, he expects it in this assembly as well. Terry Johnson writes this, really insightful. I'll read it twice. Beware, beware, he says, when God is rejected, he is not rejected because of his power or his love or his grace. God is rejected because of his holiness. Remember um, uh, Nadab and Abihu after they are killed because they disregarded God? Moses says to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored or glorified, considered gravitas. This church should be a place of prayer and worship. That's what God expects when he looks to the places of worship that are marked by his name. I confess, this passage is easy for me to say. See, Israel made a mistake. We'll see this further judgment in uh, Mark chapter 13. Those, those disobedient Jews, how dare they? Are there species of their sin swimming around in your heart? This is a house of prayer and not a robber's den. This is a place we come to honor the Holy One. It's the reason we gather is to be before a holy God who expects us to honor Him and to approach Him in our own holiness. I think this has ramifications for what we do on the drive to church. Do we pray? Do we confess? Do we repent? Do we talk about the Lord? Do we prepare our hearts? Or do we just show up on the proverbial temple mount without regard for worship. Oh, this is about Israel, and Mark 13 will come back to this, but let's not, let's not miss what God may have for our hearts as well.
Also, we should remember that Jesus in cursing Israel opens the door of his redeemed community of the church. Jesus has cursed Israel and they will not be reassigned a place of prominence until a believing, important, a saved and believing group of Israel are grafted back into the Abrahamic covenant, which happens in Romans chapter 11. The Israel we see residing in the land right now is not that branch. They don't believe the Messiah. And we'll have more on that in Mark 13.